Hi there, this is the Reverend Michael Lowry, pastor of East Congregational United Church of Christ in Concord, New Hampshire, and this is Love to Tell the Story. Just as in politics, everybody's got an opinion as regards religion, and that's just as true for devout followers of any kind of faith you can name as it is for so-called non-believers. It also applies to those of us who would be named and claimed as disciples of Jesus Christ. Simply put, when it comes to our Christian faith, we know what we know, right? But one thing we have always had to remember about what we know is that it always needs to be girded by and lived out with love. And that's what today's message is all about. It's entitled Heart Knowledge, it's based on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the eighth chapter, the verses numbered one through 13, and it begins with a little bit of a riddle. Okay then, as Rod Serling used to say, submitted for your approval. The story of three people, each one holding a block of pine wood in his or her hand. Now, the first person holding this block of wood lets it go and it falls to the ground. Actually, it falls into my lap. However, when the second person holding the block of the wood lets go, it moves upward. And the third person when they're holding the block of wood, lets go of it, and it just sort of remains there. It just sort of floats there. Now, I'm guessing that all of our response to such a scenario would be, well, that's just impossible. Certainly, the first person who let go of the wooden block and it falling to the ground, that's what you would expect it to do, right? But the second block of wood moving upward, well, that would get, go against the laws of gravity. And as we all know, gravity works. And as for the idea that that third block of wood would just sort of float there, well, that's just bizarre. And proof, if I might quote Rod Serling one more time, that you just crossed over into the twilight zone. Seriously, though, it's an impossible scenario, right? Or at least it is until we realize that, well, the first person letting go of the block might have been standing right there, and so the block would drop in the way we would expect, it turns out that the second person holding the block just happens to be standing underwater. And so when she lets go of her block, quite naturally, the block of wood would float upward to the surface of the water, which is normal and logical given the situation. And just in case you haven't figured out this real yet, the third person also just happens to be a crew member aboard an orbiting spacecraft in zero gravity, which would explain how his pine block stays exactly where it was let go. As the saying goes, a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing especially when it's what we think we know. For what we think we know is not always that which is true. And even what we do know 
varies widely given the particular circumstance or depending on the experience in which we receive that knowledge. What's also true is that sometimes our knowledge ends up merely revealing just how much we have to learn. Now, for some strange reason, when I think about this kind of thing, I always remember a man who was a contestant on the show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? This was years ago, back when the show was just starting and the late, great Regis Philbin was the host, the, one of the best game show hosts ever. And this particular night, there was this one contestant who came on and he ended up getting hung up on the $200 question, which, if you remember the show at all, that was always one of the easiest questions of the night. And in this instance, the question was about what color you get when you combine yellow and blue. The thing was, however, was that this man, he honestly did not know the answer. And even after using all three of his lifelines, he still got the question wrong. And he was gone from the hot seat as quickly as he had arrived. What I remember about this was how everybody, everybody reacted to it. The studio audience, after they got down the requisite, aw, they started laughing at him. And even Regis, who was always cool under those kind of circumstances, looked shocked and, and felt a bit awkward about what had happened. And over the next couple of days, just about every radio DJ, talk show host, stand-up comic in this country was making fun of this guy. They called him an idiot. They referred to him as a moron. Instead of becoming a millionaire, overnight, this man had become a national joke. Eventually, however, the man was, he was invited on a talk show, of course, to talk about what had happened and come to find out, he was colorblind. He'd been colorblind all his life and he had no concept whatsoever of color con uh, combinations at all. And so he really didn't have any way to answer the question. Needless to say, that revelation changed everyone's perception of things, everyone's idea of what had happened there. So yes, a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing, but most especially, I would add, when that knowledge proceeds out of an absence of love. That's what this morning's scripture reading is all about, in which the Apostle Paul addresses a matter that had become a hotbed of controversy amongst Christians in the Greek city of Corinth. It was the question of whether or not it was all right to eat meat that had already been sacrificed to idols. Now, let me give you a little background here. Corinth was not only a busy seaport city, uh, it, it was also well known for its diversity where religion was concerned. Basically, just about any god or idol you could mention uh, was being worshipped by some group or another in the city. And there were a great number of shrines and temples built to honor these so-called deities. There were also a whole lot of animal sacrifices in the city. And these sacrifices would often end up being sold to vendors on the street who would in turn make it available to the public. Bottom line is that the vast majority of all meat that was sold and served in the city of Corinth had more than likely first been sacrificed to idols. 
And for these new Christians in the city of Corinth, therein came something of a moral dilemma. To it, if they were to eat this meat that had been previously sacrificed to pagan gods and idols, were they in essence worshiping those pagan gods? And in the process, turning their back on Christ in doing so? Or, on the other hand, did it even matter, since those idols and gods never existed in the first place? Well, as you can imagine, the question sparked all sorts of debate, and as was typical of the Corinthians, it also sparked a great deal of divisions among them. There was one faction that uh, they liked to think of themselves as strong Christians. And their strength, they said, was rooted in the belief that now, since they had been saved through Christ Jesus, they were blessed with the knowledge of the truth, that there's only one God, that all the other idols out there in the city amounted to just so much stone and wood. And so any food that was offered up to these lifeless statues was just that. And, you know, eating the meat that came from that could not possibly or harm or endanger their salvation. In fact, so great was their knowledge in these matters that they also made it very, very clear that anyone who disagreed with this understanding, well, they were just weak Christians, and they were being silly and superstitious about the whole thing. And to be fair, friends, the reasoning of these so-called strong Christians did kind of make sense, at least theologically speaking. It was logical by their way of thinking, even theologically sound. After all, when you know what you know, that's kind of the end of the discussion, isn't it? Which makes it all the more interesting that when they ask Paul what he thinks about this issue, the first thing that Paul writes to them in this letter is that, yes, all of us possess knowledge. But, he goes on to say, don't be so self-assured about it. Because, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, or edifies, as, as it's translated elsewhere. In other words, there's more to this matter of eating sacrificial meat than simply logic and theological posturing. What about how our knowledge and conviction, and likewise the choices we make because of that knowledge, affects others. And what about these so-named weak Christians? The ones who might just be struggling in their faith and for whom the act of indulging in, in these pagan rituals would keep them from truly living out their Christian faith. What about oneness and unity with them in the body of Christ? Head knowledge, you see, is one thing. And those strong Christians in Corinth had that in abundance. But for all their huffing and puffing about, about what they knew was true and right and permissible and better, if you want to get down to it, they neglected something of equal, if not greater, importance. And that's heart knowledge. Paul goes on to say to them that ultimately food doesn't bring us closer to God. We're no better off where God is concerned whether we eat sacrificial meat or we don't. In Christ, we are free to do what we want. But Paul says, take care 
that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Or, if I can uh, draw a quotation from the message here, isn't there great danger if someone's still struggling on this issue? Someone who looks up to you as knowledgeable and mature sees you go into that banquet, thus getting mixed up in himself of what his conscience tells him is wrong? In other words, yes, by faith we are free, but we must not use our freedom, either knowingly or unknowingly, to undermine others in their faith. And if food is going to be the source of their calling, friends, then Paul says, I won't eat meat, so that I might be cause of even one of them to fall. In the end, you see, it's not about our being right or wrong in our opinions or our posturing. Ultimately, and, and I dare say this is true about whatever it is we believe to be real about our Christian faith and how it ought to be lived out, it always first has to be about the care and the love in which it's expressed, how it's acted upon, how it is shared. Anything less than that, friends, ends up being meaningless, if not downright detrimental. But here's the thing. When love does factor in, faith becomes all the deeper and all the more relevant for it. Some of you have heard me tell the story of how for many years uh, when I was leading high school confirmation classes, I, one of the things I did with the kids in those classes is, is something I used to call sin or no sin. Speaking of old game shows, it was a takeoff on, on the show Deal or No Deal. And basically, all I did for an hour or so was write on the blackboard all these different kinds of actions and behaviors. And, and then I asked them to decide as a group whether they thought those behaviors represented sin or no sin. And friends, we covered the gamut of human experience. Everything from little white lies, swearing, cheating on a math test, and, and working into some more adult concerns about drinking, doing drugs, engaging in casual sex. It served, I think, as a good way of getting into a discussion of Christian morality and ethics. But what was always interesting to me was how those kids would work out some of the answers. For instance... One of the, the things I always run on the board, buying a lottery ticket, sin or no sin? Well, they'd say, that's no sin. Nothing wrong with buying a lottery ticket. It's not hurting anybody. My parents buy them all the time. And they say if they win the mega bucks, they're going to give lots of money to the church. Okay, then. And by the way, say thanks to your mom and dad for me. But what if someone is spending so much money on lottery tickets that they're not able to pay their bills, say, or, or put enough food on their family's table. There would always be this long pause, and finally the kids would go, well, that's, that's something different. But everybody can afford to buy at least a couple of tickets once in a while. But what if they can't? What if they're addicted to gambling? What if this is just one more thing that has caused problems and divisions within their family? Well, 
they'd say. I, then I think we'd have to get some person some help, and, and then, then we, sh- as a church, should do whatever we can to make sure that family has enough food. Friends, pretty much that's how all our discussions seem to go. Understanding, on the one hand, how we're free to pretty much do anything we want, sinful or not, and how, on the other hand, not all things that we choose to do are good, nor do they build up. And yes, there are some things that, no matter how you look at them, they're just plain wrong. The challenge, you see, for all of us who seek to live faithfully and to follow Christ in our walk of life is to always choose that which brings ourselves and others along with us closer to God. Now, am I saying to you this morning that the depth of your faith is contingent on whether or not you buy a Powerball ticket this week? (laughs) No, that is truly up to you. But what I am suggesting is that each one of us needs to look at what we know in the strength of our faith to be good and acceptable about our lives and living. And then ask ourselves how that knowledge touches the hearts of others. What does our behavior tell our kids about who Jesus is and what it means to be a Christian? Do we, by what we do, create a a stumbling block for others who are struggling to live their lives as followers of Christ? Or does it create a new way of building up hearts and lives for the sake of God's kingdom? I would submit for your approval, friends, that our answer to that question, your answer and my answer, comes down to love. It's always about love. The love that creates an entirely new kind of ethic for our lives. The love that will reset our priorities and build up relationships with others as it builds up a relationship with God and Jesus Christ. It's true knowledge. True knowledge of the heart. Knowledge that will not only nurture our relationship with the Lord but that which will also bind the church together in its shared ministry of healing and reconciliation. And without it, well, as Paul would later write to the Corinthians, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. I hope and pray, beloved, that in wherever our faith is taking us in these strange, uncertain days we are living in, we'll always have the love it takes to move mountains. May our knowledge and wisdom be that of the heart as we walk together through this journey of faith that is life. And may we be girded by love that comes from the one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Thanks be to God. Amen and amen. And that's the message entitled Heart Knowledge, and it was recorded for our August 16th online service of worship at East Church in Concord, New Hampshire. By the way, those were the sounds of boats and a passing loon you heard there. 
We've been recording those services remotely as of late from our family's home in Northern Maine. Those online services of which I speak, they continue all through this summer. So if you're looking for a way to worship, we'd invite you to join with us there every Sunday at 10 a.m. via Facebook Live on our East Church Facebook page. In these continuing strange and uncertain days, we found a lot of value in coming together this way, and we'd really love to have you be a part of it. And with that, we're at the end of another episode of Love to Tell the Story. This is Michael Lowry, and I thank you for listening today. And until next time, be safe, be well, and may God bless you with a great day every day. Talk to you soon.